0: This message was presented at the GYC 2016 conference, when all has been heard, in Houston, Texas. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Well, good morning, everyone. I guess we better begin, because our time's real limited this morning. I know people don't like doing this, but it might be more fun to move a little more forward and form like a little dense groups because we will be doing interactive work as well. So you probably want to have a couple of people around you. So if you're all alone in your row, you probably want to skittle over and be a little bit closer to someone. So at least have someone for your group. And it makes me feel better when you're all in front. So, uh, welcome everyone again. I got to meet some of you, uh, other folks I didn't get to meet yet, but I look forward to, to getting to meet each one of you. Uh, how's the accent? Are you understanding me? Okay. If I say something funny that you don't get, I'm used to it, you know, just sort of a little wave and then I'll repeat it or we'll get someone to translate it for you. Okay. All right. Uh, let's begin with prayer. Our great heavenly father, we thank you so much that we can be together today. Thank you for protecting us as we came from different parts of the country and even different parts of the globe. Thank you that we have the privilege of being together as we study, as we explore this great gift that you've given us. I want to pray for your spirit to be especially close, Uh, open our minds, open our hearts And may each one of us find what we need. For we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, for all the folks that are coming in, come on in. I'm encouraging everyone to come up front. It's very cozy up here and uh, kind of snug. Right, a little bit, if, if you're curious about the accent, just a little bit about myself, um... My name's Chantal Klingbar. I work for the Ellen G. White Estate. It's a real nice place to work. And if you ever get the chance to, to visit Washington, D.C., come along to the G.C. building and come down to the White Estate. You get to hold, well, a replica of the Big Bible that Ellen White held in vision. We've just opened a real state-of-the-art kind of museum interactive have any of you been there, by the way? Okay. Am I promising too much? No? Okay. It's, I think it's really cool. So come on and, and visit us. Um, yes, the accent. I'm South African by birth, and that's where I grew up and went to school, and there I met a wonderful foreigner. I met a German and married him. That's the Klingbeil part. And then we went as missionaries to Peru, uh, where two of my girls were born. And then we went to Argentina, where another girl was born. And then we went to the Philippines, where no one was born. And now we're at the General Conference. And my husband works for Adventist World, Adventist Review. So you probably see his name now and again. If you read the review, and I better put in a plug for that. Read the review. You can read it online. Okay. So I've done all my advertising. So now we want to meet the profit. As I said, this is, a interactive, this is an interactive seminar. Let's see how technologically interactive it is. Uh, yeah, it doesn't look that interactive right now. You know, if I turned it on, it might work. Still nothing. Okay, we'll do it the old-fashioned way. So let's begin. Now nothing's happening. I'm sorry. Let's see what's happening here. There we go. Let's begin with some Uh, warm-ups. As I said, you want to be with someone or with a group. Okay, so turn to the person next to you or if you're three or four. This is your little warm-up exercise over here, and here's your question. Would you have liked to have Ellen White as a friend? Why or why not? And if you finish that one real quick, then you can also do that one and that one. All right? So turn to the person next to you and tell me why or why not you would have liked to have had Ellen White as a friend. welcome guys we we just discussing together in a group Um, if you would like Ellen White is your friend why why not guess what her favorite color is and what you think your favorite dessert was okay it may make a difference it may make a difference if you put an age on her. Maybe if you would have liked to have had her as a friend at seven, when she was 17, or when she was 45, or when she was you know, 79, you may, that may change what, what you would say there. But uh, OK, I'll give you another minute. Okay, let's see. Let's see. How many of you would have liked to have been friends with with Ellen? Well, I guess you picked the seminar. All right, how many of you are not quite sure? All right, you're the honest people. You're the honest people. I must admit that, you know, she was a very different person to what I am. And I've been uniquely privileged uh, working at the White Estate. What I particularly enjoy is reading her diaries because I think you see a person very differently when you read their diaries and personal letters. And the more I'm reading these, the more I like her. The more I like her, the more I can identify with her. Um, You know, Ellen White is the old lady. I, I do see her. I see a lot of my grandmother. My grandmother had a lot of the same characteristics, and uh, my one grandmother, and I really loved her, and I see a lot of connections there. Um, as a, as a middle aged lady, I'm connecting a lot more with her right now. When I read about the issues she's having with her kids and her marriage, and trying to balance marriage, and ministry, and all this kind of thing, I'm really beginning to identify with her a lot. And then I really can look back, and I can read those early letters of hers, when she's in her early 20s, and I'm like, I've been there. Yes, that is exactly how I felt. That is exactly what I've wondered about God, and about my relationship with God. So she's becoming a very, very real person, and, and I think she's becoming a friend to me. And that's something I, I wish and I hope that everyone could have a peek at. Because I think a lot of the false ideas we have about Ellen White, or the strange ways we relate to how she has her writings, uh, has a lot to do with what we think of Ellen White as a person. What kind of person we think she was. Oh, what do you think her favorite color was? Yeah. You cheated. You knew that, right? Where did you get that info? You went to her house? That's right. You were at Elmshaven, right? Where they speak about the dream in the room with the pink clouds? Yeah. Pink was her favorite color. Anyone else guess that? You guessed no, it. Was uh, you were at General Conference, so you knew it. But anyone else? No. We somehow, when we think of her, we don't think of pink, right? You think of black or you think of uh, navy blue or uh, some sort of dark, dismal color. But she is a very bright, vibrant person. She loved pretty things. She loved colors. She loved flowers. She really loved flowers very much. She wore bright clothes. Um, We always think of her as wearing black or navy but we know in her diaries like every other woman she spoke about her clothes now back then you got uh, normally one outfit per year that you'd have made up okay so you had in circulation probably three or four dresses would be your entire wardrobe for men it was about the same you have your good one for church and for you know, weddings and funerals and, and all that kind of thing. You have your good one. And then last year's good one becomes your visiting, uh, going shopping dress. And the year before's one is your work dress and your work clothes. So that's the way things worked. You didn't quite have the variety that we have. So it was a big choice each year was what you how you were going to make your dress and what fabric you were going to choose to excuse me, to make your dress. So that was a big deal. And she would record in her diary how she'd found this on special and it was just so beautiful and she was going to have so-and-so help her make it up or she'd do it herself. She often got help uh, and she was going to do it like this and like this in, in her diary. And we know she wore bright colors. She enjoyed wearing, uh, you know, you think of Little House on the Prairie, calico prints that she used a lot of. Um, and she had greens, a very very vivid green we have recorded you don't think of her dressed in a, an emerald green, quite a nice bright green. Uh, we get the idea of dull clothes from from her photographs which of course are all black and white so we don't see the color. Also her husband died in 1881. And that was, of course, in the middle of the Victorian era. And what did you do in the Victorian era when someone died? You went into mourning. And people died a lot, so you went into mourning. If if it was a close relative, um, it would be three months to a year of mourning. Uh, If it was a more distant relative, uh, it would be three months. And you wore black for that time, period to show your respect and to show that you were in mourning. If it was your husband or your wife, you would go for one year in black. So that was kind of tradition back then. Then for a woman, after that period of mourning, if you went back to wearing bright colors, it meant you were available. That you were ready for a proposal and you wanted to get married again. Ellen White, after her one year, she went out of her black into browns and navies and dark colors. Why? She didn't want to get married again. So she stated that by the clothes that she wore. However, she did have a marriage proposal, but uh, she said no. Okay. What was her favorite dessert? Anyone? Anyone? Apple pies, we have some apple pies going here. Have you been to Elmshaven? Have you been to GC? Are you just guessing? All right, tell us what it was. Rice pudding, no. No rice pudding, yeah, okay. Cookies. No, she did bake cookies. And there was rice pudding. Who who said rice pudding? Yeah, that's on the menu. We have from Elmshaven, we have menus. So we can tell, we also have grocery lists, so we can see what things got bought, uh, which is really interesting for historic purpose. Anyone else? Ice cream. ice cream. You know, we don't have a record of her making ice cream. We know that it was made sometimes at picnics, um, but we don't have a record of her actually making it. It was a big deal to actually make ice cream. We we know in Elmshaven she had cream, they used cream, they had a cow, but actually making ice cream. Um, lemon pie was her favorite dessert. She liked the lemon pie with the meringue on the top. The fluff. That was her, her favorite dessert, which is, of course, an interesting, uh, an interesting aside. Okay, a little bit about her, a little bit about Ellen as the person, a little bit about Ellen as the person. You all know she was one of a twin, right? And unfortunately, that's kind of the earliest picture we have of the twins, which is not very early at all. Any idea why people looked so grumpy in photographs? They weren't allowed to smile? Right. The film exposure took a long time, sometimes up to two to three minutes, especially the earlier pictures. It, exposure was a long, long time. And you had to sit absolutely still for that time. You couldn't blink, all right? So you had to just stare and not blink, and not move a muscle, because if you moved any, anything, a blink or whatever, would give you a blur. And pictures were very expensive to do. So when you went to have your photograph taken, it was a big deal. And they normally strapped you to a contraption, a wooden contraption. They would actually tie you to it, tie your neck to it, uh, so that nothing would move even slightly. So I guess people often look pained in the picture because they probably were in pain by being strapped to this contraption. And then you've got someone shouting at you the whole time, Don't move! Don't move! Don't move! You're moving! Don't move! Don't move! For, for a minute or so before click it goes. So they told you don't smile, just stare and concentrate on not blinking. So I, I think if you try that, eh, most people looked actually fairly cheerful under the circumstances. You can also imagine that if you tried to hold a smile for a minute, you'd have a snarl and it would look pretty scary at the end of a picture if you've got this grin. So so that's why people look particularly grim. They improve as photography improves. It's very interesting because when Ellen first is married, uh, we're looking at 46, 47, 1846, 1847, photography is really in its infancy. And it's very expensive t- to do. The technique is diffi- difficult. and Throughout her life, photography just improves. Technology does in general. It just sort of, I mean, she hits the industrial revolution. She hits big time changes in society. But photography improves. And we get better and better and better pictures of her coming out. And she looks more relaxed as well. People start looking better. But by then they're old and they have no teeth as well. Which uh, of course is a problem. So we have Ellen and, the, and her s- twin sister Elizabeth. They come into a family that's already pretty big. Um, they have six siblings, all the siblings already. So it's a big family. They the only twins, and by all accounts, they were they were happy. Uh, happy family, not a very well-to-do family. Uh, you know, working hard. Father was a hatter, made hats. Uh, so yeah, her childhood, her early childhood, seemed to have been, seemed to have been a good one. They had, uh, she wasn't called Ellen at home. Anybody know what she was called at home? Because, I mean, people don't generally or aren't generally called by their full names at home, right? You've got your terms of endearment, your nicknames. Well, anyone want to guess what Elizabeth's was? Lizzie. They called her Lizzie, and in her correspondence with her sister, it's always Lizzie. And what was Ellen's name? Ella. Ella. One of her granddaughters is named that afterwards as well. But Ella was her her nickname, so it was Ella and and Lizzie. Um, Then, of course, there was the big turning point for her. When you have an accident as a child or when you have some big thing happen to you, it will leave its imprint. What happened when she was nine? All right, did you all hear that story back at school? You didn't hear the story? She's on her way somewhere. It's obviously not back from school because if we look at the map, we can have the exact spot where it happened. But she and Lizzie and another school friend were walking back from wherever they were walking back and a school, a bigger school girl, because remember these are one room school houses where you have all different grades together. So she's nine years old, so she's in the third grade and this big girl for some or another reason is angry, is upset, is shouting at them, so they decide not to pick a fight, they're just going home. So they're making a run for home with the big girl chasing them. And Ellen turns around at some point to see where the big girl is. And at this point, the big girl has a big rock, which she hurls at Ellen. I like to say that big girl must have had brothers. And she must have been used to playing baseball with her brothers. Because she obviously had quite a swing. Or perhaps the angle just caught Ellen really right or wrong, but it hits Ellen full in the face and breaks her nose and breaks several bones in her face. Um, She, of course, falls to the ground unconscious. Uh, The the big girl does what I think most people would do in that circumstance. She turns and runs. and Lizzie and, and the school friend pick Ellen up and drag her into a nearby store. And so she's lying there on the floor in the store, and what happens to you when you cut your face? You bleed, and you bleed a lot. So it's quite a mess, she's lying there on the floor. She remembers coming around and seeing all these people standing over her and and talking to her, she didn't feel any pain. I I guess she must have been in shock, didn't feel any pain, but all these people were worried about her. And there was a lady there that said, I'll take her home in my carriage. And um, Ellen, who was very shy, as, and I guess a lot of us can identify with that, she was very shy, and so she kind of wakes up, and there's all these people staring at her. And she's only got one thought, and that thought is out. I want to get out. I want to get away from all these people staring at me. So she's, no, no, it's okay. It's okay. Uh, I'll go home myself. So she gets up and she sees blood everywhere, and that gives her, of course, a bit of a fright. She still doesn't feel any pain. Uh, and this kind lady is still trying to help her up and wants to take her. And she says, no, no, I'm going to make a mess in your carriage. No, 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 we'll, we'll, we'll just walk. So between Lizzie and, and the friend, they end up carrying her home, dragging, carrying her home, which fortunately isn't too far. It's about two blocks to home. Um, Doctors called, she lapses into unconsciousness, and she's in and out of consciousness for about three weeks. So she's not eating anything, and her mom is kind of spooning chicken soup in to try and get some nutrition into her during this time. Um, She doesn't remember much, but she's in and out, and she's remembering voices. And people are coming to visit, people are saying things like, you should sue the parents, of that girl. Even back then, people were into suing. Uh, You should sue the parents. And Ellen's mom says, no, it's not going to help. It's not going to bring my my daughter's features back again. That's not going to work. Uh, I feel very sorry for for Ellen's mom, because she's all alone when this happens. Uh, The father's away on a long business trip. He's down selling hats. He's out of state. So she's all alone dealing with with this daughter. The doctors say they give her a very small chance of survival. And they are also predicting that if she does survive, she'll have all sorts of issues. Um, Ellen clearly remembers at this time the neighbor woman saying to Ellen's mom, don't worry, I have a lovely little dress that we can bury her in. That I will give you as, as a gift. So don't worry about that. Uh, and she can remember this. When she, when she comes eventually, after being in and out of consciousness for, for, for a long time, when she eventually does regain consciousness, she realizes she's very weak and she realizes that visitors she, have, uh, she has all show a shocked expression when they see her. And she wonders about that. So she calls for a mirror, a looking glass. And people are like, oh, OK, yeah, we'll get it later. Um, and they kind of avoid giving her a mirror. Because she must have looked pretty bad at this time. I mean, she's all swollen. If you think of all the breakages, she's all swollen and probably black and blue and green and you know whatever else. Uh, plus, uh, her features have really changed. Uh, When she eventually sees the the looking glass and sees what she looks like, she gives a big fright. And I think we, maybe the guys can't identify, but all of us gals can identify with that. I mean, we all spend enough time looking in the mirror, right? And that horror that she feels when she says, that's it. I'm ugly. I'm ugly now. You know, who's going to like me like this? I'm... I'm really ugly. Uh, This is a time of tremendous uh, personal turmoil for her, but it has its upside. Because she hears people say that she's going to die, uh, she suddenly figures out, you know, if I'm going to die, I better be ready to die. Because as far as she knows, you go to heaven or you go burn in hell. And uh, she definitely didn't want to burn in hell but she didn't feel she was ready for heaven yet either. She knew that she had done bad things. Um, I'm pretty sure she and her sisters had had their fights, and she had been disobedient, and she had done the other things that kids do, so she knew she wasn't good enough for heaven. Uh, So it was a real problem time for her, but it was also the time where, through her mom, she accepts Jesus into her heart for the first time. And she has such a peace that she says it's okay. Whether I live or whether I die, it's okay. Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. Doesn't matter what I look like, I'm okay. So that helps. That helps. She's eventually well enough to go back to school. And how do you think her reception was when she went back to school? What would you guess? anyone? Imagine, what do you think it was like when she went back to school? Okay, there wasn't outright mocking. People were probably too polite for outright bullying back then, but she really felt shunned. Uh, She apparently was quite a fit little girl beforehand, loved playing, loved running, loved doing these, these things. Now she's out of breath very quickly. She can't breathe through her nose. For years and years, she won't be able to breathe through her nose. So she can't breathe through her nose. She gets tired very quickly, and she looks different. Uh, She's got bad scarring still. So people are not outright bullying her, but maybe you've had that experience where they choose teams at recess, and then you're the last one standing. And then team A says, okay, well, you can have Ellen. And team B says, no, no, you go ahead and have her. You know so you kind of you feel it, you feel it. So she really does feel it. She also does have results from the accident. She can't write. Uh, it must have affected her motor nerves because when she starts writing, she really, really, really shakes. Um, and she's tired out very, very quickly. So it's sort of back to first grade writing and shaking and sweating, and then she wants to faint. So this went on for for several months. She was given a tutor. Who do you think she was given as a tutor to help her? Lizzie. Nope. The big girl. She was given the big girl as a tutor. And um, it was actually a good thing. Because I think it was a good thing for the big girl because she got to see what she did. Uh, that, That one moment of, you know, just... Losing control can have consequences for other people. So I think it was a good thing, and that girl really did feel sorry. And Ellen remarks that that girl showed a lot of patience and sat with her for hours trying to help her. But eventually it got to the point where uh, the teacher said, take her home, see what you can do with it at home. She's not going to finish school. Um, you know, she just doesn't have the ability. Uh, this was very hard for Ellen because... She wanted to be a teacher. That was kind of her dream. For a woman, that was probably about the only job that, that there was out there. So she had been dreaming big, but uh, now that was completely off. Um, she doesn't look that pretty anymore, so marriage is probably off the books as well. So she's going to be an old maid and uh, sit around at home for the rest of her life. That's kind of the prospects that she has facing her ah uh, fortunately for, for her, that isn't what happened. I think if you look carefully uh, at Ellen, you can look at this picture, you look a little bit later on. I don't think she looks that ugly. I don't know. Um, if you look carefully at her much later pictures and really amplify it, you'll notice... Her nose is a little skew on the, the left side. This nose hole is a little skew and there's a scar running down from, from the edge of the nose to the lip. But that's about all I can make out on really trying to study the picture. I think this came at a good time because this was before her real growth spurt. because so, This happened when she was nine. So I think her body rebuilt quite a lot. Uh, in that sense. So by the time she was uh, 16, 17, she was a very weak teenager, physically weak uh, after this accident, Uh, but I think she was and still extremely shy. I think you you carry the emotional damages for for a long time. At this time, uh, she and her family also become Millerites, Anybody not know what a Millerite is? All right, you're all up to date on the Millerite history? There's one or two. All right, just very briefly, William Miller is preaching that Jesus is coming. He's looked at the Daniel prophecy, the 2,300-day prophecy. He knows their years. He's found the beginning point. He finds the end point to be around 1843, 1844. And uh, he's it's a long story, but he starts preaching this message. Her family hears this, and they accept this as truth. It has consequences because the regular churches, the established churches, don't like this message after a while. It's a bit too fanatical for their likings, a bit too literal Bible interpretation, so they uh, are disfellowshipped from their church. If you read the minutes of the meeting, it's a little bit like A little bit, just a little bit. But it reminds me a bit of Martin Luther before the Diet at Worms. You know, here I am, so help me God kind of thing. Um, Robert Harmon, her father, is asked, will you and your family stop believing the Advent message? Will you stop believing that Jesus is coming soon and just become normal again Uh, and just accept the teachings of the church instead of your own interpretations. And he says, I and my family cannot do that. We take the Bible seriously, and we're looking forward to Jesus coming again. And then they are dismissed, which, of course, in a small town is further kind of ostracization, further separation from from your community, which is not easy. But God has big things in store for this young lady. Uh, October 22, 1844, she, of course, um, experiences the great disappointments along with everyone else. After that, she takes a real turn for the worse physically. She has tuberculosis already. Uh, She'd really been looking forward to the second coming because she really wanted that new body uh, because she realized that the one she had was wearing out pretty fast. By December, the tuberculosis is so advanced that she can't lie down because, you know, TB works at your lungs and your lungs are bleeding. So um, when she lies down, the blood fills her lungs and she can't breathe. So she's got to sleep sitting up at night and needs constant care. Um, Her mom is so tired and so worn out that her mom sends her... She goes to a young friend, Mrs. Elizabeth Haynes. I love this. It's Mrs. Elizabeth Haynes. How old do you think Mrs. Elizabeth Haynes is? Yeah, she's about 18, 19, Mrs. Elizabeth Haynes. Uh, as soon as you got married, you took your full proper title. So it always sounds like a bunch of old people, but people are, the story of Ellen White at this time is, 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 is under 30. I mean, everyone she's connected with, the whole Advent movement, all of this, it's young. It's young. The oldest person is is Joseph Bates, and he's in his early 50s, and he's the father of the movement. He's old. Everybody else is under 30, and well under 30. So it's a very young, young movement. So at Elizabeth Haynes' house, she has her first vision. And this is, of course, remarkable. And she would have about how many more visions in her lifetime? Yep. Plus, minus 2,000 visions. They'd range from a few seconds to four hours. Uh, So it would be long, short, quick. How was Ellen White when she was in vision? Tell me about her physically. Anyone? Unconscious? Yes, she was not conscious of her surroundings, of her real surroundings there. She didn't breathe. Yep, no breathing, not conscious of her surroundings. She could be very strong. She could be very strong. Uh, Later on, James used to often get, he used to, if she went into vision, In a meeting situation. He'd call if there was a doctor in the house. He would get the doctor to come up and examine her. And there's plenty of doctors that ran from the building that had never seen anything like that. So you get the doctor to come examine her to find out if she if you know what what was going on. And we have lots and lots of testimonies of non believers that said something weird was going on. Everyone, every testimony we have records that when Ellen White was in vision, there was no doubt that something supernatural was going on. Now, whether you were going to attribute that to the devil or to God was another thing, but there was never any doubt that something supernatural was going on. You couldn't walk out of there and say, oh, nothing happened. When you see this little woman not breathing and talking, you can't talk and not breathe at the same time. It just doesn't happen. Um, You can't see her pick up heavy objects for longer amounts of time. People used to often try to move her arms because she would sometimes be gesturing. She would, um, she'd be totally engaged. She wasn't in a trance-like state. She'd be totally engaged, but engaged with another world. So you would watch her eyes, and she would look. And she would look, and she'd, oh no, no, oh. Glory, yes. Oh, please. So she would be interacting, talking. You'd see her eyes. (coughs) Excuse me. She'd be fully engaged in this other world. So sometimes people would try to move her arms if she had an arm up, uh, and you just couldn't move her at that time. She had that strength. That's the way she was. She was under another's power. She met a very energetic young man. This is one of the earliest pictures we have of them. And she's pregnant with their first, oh no, this is already I think the third that she's pregnant with uh, in this picture. You can see, but that's one of the earliest pictures we have of, of James and Ellen together. He's already losing some of his hair back there. But theirs was a very interesting courtship and very different from how we would court today, um, but a very, very warm marriage. They really loved each other. It's really cute to hear some of the letters that come and go between them. You really feel like you're reading other people's emails, which you are, which you shouldn't be reading. But it's fun anyway. And. Um, <laughs> And how they tease each other very often uh, when they're apart and, and writing to each other. It's, it's very nice. This marriage wasn't without its problems. Just because she was God's prophet didn't mean she wasn't normal. Um, this marriage went through everything that splits couples today, except for marriage infidelity. None of them had affairs with anyone else, but all the other biggies that split up marriages, they had. And they had to work through. And it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy. Especially later on, James suffered at least five strokes, major strokes. And we know today, you warn a person, the the relatives, when someone's had a stroke, depending on which part of the brain was affected, You often have personality changes, and James had some major personality changes. Um, At one stage, he became quite paranoid, and he was pretty sure that everyone was after him. Uh, He couldn't stand noise. She writes to a friend. She says, I don't know what to do. When I leave the room, he wants me back. When I sit in the room, I've got to be dead quiet, and if my knitting needles click, he just gets, gets crazy angry. Um, because he can't stand the noise. So she says, what's with this man? I, I just, I don't understand him. Uh, he, and it was a real struggle for both of them as he regained his health and as they found each other again uh, in in their work. So anyway, very interesting story. They had, oh, now nah, you get a turn. Ha! All right, how do you think she was viewed by those who knew her? Just quickly, her friends and family, what do you think they thought of her when they saw her or when they spoke about her? All right, turn to the person next to you just quickly. What do you think? Okay, what do you think her family thought of her? Anyone? Probably mixed. Do you want to say any more? Who, her sister? Lizzie? Lizzie actually was never baptized, and Lizzie, as far as we know, as far as we know, we hope we're wrong, but as far as we know, she never accepted Jesus as her personal Savior. We have a a letter, it's probably one of the most touching letters in in the collection, where she writes to her sister Lizzie, who's then in her 60s, and she's sick, and she writes to her about three months before her death. And she pleads with Lizzie. She says, take Jesus as your Savior. It's not hard, Lizzie. It's not hard. You don't have anything to lose, and you have everything to gain. Lizzie, I want you there. Please, just open your heart to Jesus. So she writes a very touching letter to Lizzie. Yes? Okay, well, they loved her, and and accepted her. They sometimes found her annoying and weird, perhaps. Didn't want to hear what she had to say sometimes. Okay. I'm pretty sure her boys felt that way uh, because she was a mother. And so I'm pretty sure her boys felt that way. And I'm sure that James felt that way sometimes, although I find this extremely interesting. It seems that her family could distinguish between Ellen the person and Ellen the prophet without any trouble. Um, Her husband, James, at one stage where they are working on different, uh, different sections of the country and the marriage is very strained at one stage, he writes to her and he says to her, stop telling me what to do. I have a good head on my shoulders and I can make my own decisions. And, you know, she's saying things like, wear your warm coat because he's just recovered from the stroke, you know. Wear your warm coat. Don't forget to eat such and such and, you know, kind of wifey things. So he's saying, leave me alone. Don't bother me. I'll make my own decisions. Then he adds as a PS, he says, but if you have a message from the Lord for me, please deliver. (laughs) So I thought that's pretty cool. That he could tell the difference at that moment where you were absolutely irritated with your spouse, but you still realize if they have a direct message from the Lord, you better, you, you better listen because it's good stuff. So yes, her direct family never had any trouble telling the two apart. With friends, she realized after a while it became friends had it more difficult. Uh, it was very lonely because people used to What she said to a friend privately, people would talk about outside of friendship thing and say, oh, Ellen White says we should do this and this and this. And she's like, no, I was just talking privately to a friend. That wasn't a general statement for the church. That was just me and a friend. Um, So she became more and more guarded with her friendships. People used to also come just to look at her because they, oh, she's a prophet. Does she look weird? What does she do? Oh, she's eating. What's she eating? Oh, she's dressing. How long's her dress? What's she doing with her hair? Ah, she's got a watch strap. So um, it was living under the loop, which was not easy. Um, Are any of you pastor's kids? Okay, any PKs? We've got just two PKs. I'm a PK. Um, Us PKs will know a little bit what that's like. We knew the pastor's kids... Your parents, your father's ministry is judged off your behavior and your dress. If you come to church dressed funny or you dye your hair purple, it's not just your decision. It's your father. What kind of a minister is he? So, uh, and your father might even say to you, don't do that. Please, you know, think of your family. Think of me. Think of, you know. So it's living the loop. And her family felt that, especially her boys, and that wasn't that wasn't easier at all uh, that wasn't easy. Um, her oldest son, Henry, he felt the pressure too of growing up a prophet's son at times, loved his mom, um, loved his father, he was probably the handsome one, the musical one, uh, very gifted. I often wonder what he would have become unfortunately. Uh, he died at the age of 16. So he, he caught pneumonia and he died very quickly. There was no, no cure for it back then. But he wrote on his deathbed, he wrote a very touching um, little pamphlet for all his friends. Uh, I guess he would have put it on Instagram, but he didn't have it. So he wrote a little booklet for all his friends saying, people, life's short. Make the most of it. Live for Jesus now, because you, you don't know about tomorrow. Um, and his last words were, heaven sweet, which I think comforted his parents a lot. They, they were both with him when he died. Um, second boy, Edson, uh, was a headache. Already from a young age, he was the black sheep of the family, um, he had his father's yeah. You like his tie, huh? He had his father's business sense uh, to a degree. Uh, he liked making money. He liked um, yeah. He liked business practices, etc. He didn't particularly like church, and he didn't particularly like have a, a vibrant relationship with God. He was pretty quickly devious and would climb out of the window at night, Hawley's younger brother along with him, and they would hit the town and that kind of thing. Um, Funny enough, God never interfered with Ellen as a mother or as a wife. I find that interesting. You think that God should have shown her what her kids were up to, right? In vision. But he didn't. He left, he left things to work out like any other mother would have to, and like any other father would have to. Also with her husband. I mean, he could have just shown her the effects of a stroke and what was wrong, and he didn't. He left it on for her, like you and I, we have to work through these interpersonal relationships with Jesus one-on-one. We don't, you don't get any inside lane if you're a prophet uh, on, you, on, on these relationships here. Edson has a strained relationship. I mean, this I didn't know about before I went to the white estate because I think we've tried to whitewash history a little bit here because it's an embarrassment. Um, he got married at, I think it was 19 or 20, against his parents' will. The girl was nice. His parents had nothing against the girl, but they said he's too immature, which he was. And he gets married. Um, then he starts in on one business venture and another, and he discovers that being a white can have some uh, financial benefits. He goes into a little town, and there's other Adventists, and he says, oh, I want to start this great outreach program. We're going to do this and do this and do that. Invest your money with me. And people, oh, El white son, yeah, great, great idea. So they, they invest their money with him, and then, of course, the venture goes, bang, and he slips town, And the people don't have their money. So the people write to James and Ellen saying, oh, you know, this and this happened. Uh, We'd like our money back, Um, which wasn't exactly nice. And it caused tension between James and Ellen as well, because they had different parenting philosophies. Uh, James was the tough love kind of guy. And he was like, well, he did it. He should take the consequences. And Ellen was like, "Well, let's bail him out this time and tell him not to do it again." Um, The mother, you know, we'll we'll just we'll um, we'll talk to him, and you know, we gotta." And yeah, he went and did it again. Uh, So it did breed real strained family relations until James dies. After James dies, something snaps, and he kind of breaks free. He has a big fight with the Review and Herald, publishing association and he stops attending church. And he writes to his mother saying, I have decided that I'm not in the least bit religious, um, which is pretty devastating. You hear over and over and over in her diary how she wakes up at crazy hours of the night and can't sleep, and he's praying for, for, for her son, for Edson. So this really, she carries it for years and years and years. Him bouncing from one crazy thing to the next. When he is 43 years old, Ellen gets a letter saying, I've met Jesus. I gave my heart to Jesus. I I can't believe that I didn't do it sooner. Jesus loves me. I don't know why I never got it before, but he loves me. And um, Ellen writes back. She's ecstatic. She's happy. But you hear a little tone like, is this for real? Or is this another trick to soften us all up and get some more money out of us, you know? Uh, So you you kind of just hear that little back, is this for real? It is for real. And Edson puts his heart and his mind and everything into service for Jesus. And he becomes, this is after the Civil War, no one wants to go down south. Ku Klux Klan is running around making things difficult. Ellen White has said over and over that the... The freed slaves need education; they need someone to go down and help them because they 're little better than slaves. Now they need someone to help them get on their feet and This is the brave man who thinks up the plan of building the morning store, raises the funds, and then goes down the Mississippi into dangerous territory to work once he has actually accepted jesus then there 's little Willie. Willie grows up to be Ellen's, he's a very mischievous guy. We can tell piles of stories about him. Very mischievous. These kids are, are very normal children. Uh, did you hear the one about when they were in school? What happened to the, with the teacher? Um, they didn't like their teacher, Miss Smith or whatever her name was. So he climbs into the, Willie climbs into the schoolroom window one day and he writes on the board. Uh, let's see if I get it right the devil went east, the devil went west, uh, and then he, he, the devil went east, the devil went west, then he dropped Miss Smith here, or something to this effect, on the blackboard. And um, yeah, he couldn't, it was the moral of it was that even the devil couldn't stand Miss Smith, so he spat her, spat her out here. And he writes this on the blackboard, and the next day at school, Um, the teacher wants to know who wrote that. And, of course, no one wrote that. But the teacher's not as stupid as she might look because she recognizes their handwritings. And so she says, Willie, did you write that? And so when he's directly, yeah, he wrote it. Well, I want you to apologize. So he stands up and he says, my parents taught me to always tell the truth, so I can't apologize. (laughs) So, um... We can only imagine what happened when he got home after Miss <laughs> Smith had decided to talk to his parents. So he was, he was also quite a handful, but he, he grew up to be a steady young man, uh, a great administrator and a great helper to, to, to Ellen White. Her youngest, John Herbert, he died, unfortunately, at the age of 12 weeks. Uh, so a really little guy. Ellen White knew what it was like to lose someone very close to you. Uh, as a mother, I mean, those, especially the last week, I mean, they prayed nonstop over this little guy, uh, and he showed no improvement, and, and he died. Uh, his brother died three years later, Henry, the oldest, died in 1863, and on, on Henry's deathbed, Henry said, remember, heaven is sweet, but he said, please, when I die, because he was in, in, in Thompson, uh, Maine, he said, when I die, please bury me in Battle Creek next to my little brother. Because on the resurrection morning, I want to be there next to him first so that he has some family close to him first. So please bury me there, the, the big brother. All right, and we have the last picture of James as, as, as the old man. Uh, over here he dies in 1881. Uh, He's just 60, so (laughs) you aged quickly. I think his sicknesses and and other health issues and work. The man really worked himself to death uh, in the cause that that he loved back then. Um, And as I say, it was the marriage with issues, but they worked through it all. And when he died, for Ellen, it was life-stopped again. She said, I, how can I go on without him? Um, little did she know that would, her most productive years would still, would still be ahead. There'd be time in, in Europe as a missionary, and of course time in Australia, Sunnyside, as a missionary. And then finally, uh, several of you have visited Elmshaven, where she died, where she slipped and fell, broke her hip. And then, that was in February, and on July 16, uh, 1915, she actually died. Anybody know what her last words were? It's always interesting to know what a person says on their deathbed, right? expect it to be something profound. Anyone? Yes. Yes. She quotes. She quotes scripture. Her last words are... I know in whom I have believed. I like saying that's quite a contrast. That's quite a contrast to someone else who was her contemporary. Charles Darwin writes his book right about the same time that Ellen White does her first edition of The Great Controversy. Interesting connection. When he dies, you know what his last words are? I hope it's not true. I hope there's something more. And she, on her deathbed, says, I know in whom I have believed. He's hoping that what the evolutionary theory isn't true. He's hoping that there's something after death, that there will be some hope, that you don't just have nothing. In evolution. In evolution. And yet he set something in motion, huh? Without that assurance. Okay, we are very much near the end over here. And a last, a last quick question. What do you, would it be important to know or think of Ellen White as a real person when you're reading, your, reading her books? Just quickly with the person next to you, we will end within one minute because I know some of you want to go to other seminars. Thank you. you. Oh, yeah, that would be great. Thank you. Okay, here we go. It would be important to know that Ellen White is a real person when you read her books, when you connect with her. Right, just a quick advert. The next one is more hands-on. We look at inspiration and what it was like to have a vision. right, and how inspiration works. Thanks for coming. This message was presented at the GYC 2016 conference, when all has been heard, in Houston, Texas. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.